This week's episode of the Vel News Podcast brought to you by MetPro, the world-renowned concierge nutrition, fitness, and performance company. Uh, listeners may remember that just a couple weeks ago, I interviewed MetPro's founder, Angelo Poli, to talk all about the company and what it does and how MetPro's experts analyze your metabolism to provide an individualized approach to diet and training to help you lose weight, fuel yourself for your training and racing goals, and just be a better athlete. So what does that mean? Uh, you can maximize your power to weight ratio as a cyclist. You can also identify the best nutrition and fueling strategies for those big long rides and your races. How does it work? MetPro's team, uh, they sit with you, they create an individualized metabolic profile, and then they basically assess your lifestyle, your current diet, and where your metabolism is, and they provide you a roadmap for how to eat and how to train. And something that we don't think about is that our metabolism is always uh, changing, it's always adapting, if we increase our activity, our, me our metabolism changes, if we change our diet, it does that. So by working with one of MetPro's experts, we're able to make these tweaks and changes to help us lose weight and to fuel ourselves for our ambitions. Uh, right now, VeloNews listeners receive a complimentary metabolic profile assessment and a 30-minute consultation with a MetPro expert. Uh, check it out, metpro.co forward slash Velo. Again, it's metpro.co forward slash Velo. Uh, thanks so much to MetPro for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on to the show. We are back. We are back. We are back with the Velo News podcast. Fred Dreyer, editor in chief of Velo News, uh, coming to you today from Tuesday, August twenty seventh. We have a great program for you today. I am going to link up with Andrew Hood, who is on the ground at the Vuelta España. We are four stages in at the Vuelta, and we're going to get caught up on what's been going on. We're going to be talking about the week at hand, who our contenders are. Just what the heck is going on at the Vuelta, which, um, you know, I love the Vuelta. So much chaos, always exciting. And even though it is at the tail end of the World Tour season, uh, still plenty to catch up on there. We're also going to talk about the Colorado Classic women's only race, which wrapped up this past weekend in Colorado. Chloe Digert-Owen put on a clinic winning, winning all four stages. Uh, but this race was actually quite important as a testing ground for the women's only racing format. Uh, we're going to hear from Nielsen Paulus today, American who's making his Grand Tour debut at the Welta. And then at the tail end of the show, we're going to talk to a very special guest, Christoph Sauser, former mountain bike world champion, uh, and Christoph is participating in the first ever e-bike world championships at Mount St. Anne coming up this week. Uh, e-biking is now a world championship sport. But as Christoph is going to tell us, it's not just about like flicking your e-bike into turbo mode and dropping everyone. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this chat with Christoph Sauser. Uh, before we get to all that, though. Um, Andrew Hood is on the line. He is in Spain somewhere. Andy, uh, first of all, set the setting. Give 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 our listeners a uh, feel for where you are right now. Set the scene. Fred, good to be back. I am in a town called El Puch, which is a, a little town just north of Valencia on the Spanish Mediterranean coast, inside a monastery. You know, it's great to be back at the Grand Tours. You know, Fred. Uh, as, as you well know, you know, I've been uh, on the couch for the last month. I think you've had some personal news as well. I think that's why maybe our, our dear listeners have been missing the Velo News podcast. Uh, so it's good to be back on the ground, back here at the Vuelta España. First big race I've been to since the Giro. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to why I've been gone. But first of all, Eddie, I mean, let's give the listeners an update on your injuries and your healing. I mean, much like uh, we have to tune in to see how our favorite pro riders are doing in their recovery from various injuries. Uh, media members also need to provide, I feel like, semi-regular updates on their injuries. So so how is everything? Andy, are you back on the bike pushing big watts? I'm just off the couch. That's that's what counts right now. No no bike riding yet. I need to get uh, I need to get a turbo trainer, man. Come on. Uh, help me out here. 
<laughs> no, it's like, as, as my doctor said, uh, old bones heal slow. So the collarbone's still there. I'm still wearing this kind of, you know, old school shoulder harness. Everyone thinks I have like this modern backpack on. I'm like, no, that's not, this is not a backpack. This is uh, one of those uh, figure eight shoulder harnesses that are keeping your, your collarbone intact. And, and the bone is it's there. It's growing back. So hopefully, hopefully. In a couple more weeks, I'll be through all this. So, I mean, the collarbone is a very uh, common injury in the world of pro cycling. Oftentimes, we hear about riders crashing, falling on their shoulder, snapping their collarbone. And, you know, the, the media reports always contain a tweet like two days later that's like so-and-so uh, went underwent surgery and had their collarbone plated and now they're healing. And so uh, did your team director, did they um, they just opted not to go for surgery? What's going on there, Hoodie? You're going for the, the natural method of letting your collarbone grow back together. Yeah, team doctor convinced me that 95% of all collarbones can heal naturally. All you need is a little bit of patience. My patience is running out, I have to say. That's why I just said to heck with it. I'm going down to the Welta. Jumped on a train and got down here. And uh, it's good to be back at the races. You know, there's nothing quite like being at, on the ground at a race, is it, Fred? <laughs> it's true. I am missing it as well. I was at the Colorado Classic. It felt great to be back this past weekend. Uh, as you alluded to, um, I have been missing in action. The listeners have been tuning in for our various interviews in our hiatus. You have been uh, recovering from injury, and I have been um, adjusting to a new sleep schedule brought on by the arrival of my first child. My wife and I welcomed a baby daughter back in early August, and we everyone is happy and healthy and uh, adjusting to the new lifestyle of being the parent of an infant, which is extremely rewarding, fun, and also a little bit messy, and uh, there's some sleep deprivation going on too, Hoodie. Congratulations. That's more important than any bike race. I mean, congratulations, Fred. We're glad to hear that baby and mom are, are doing fine. And, you know, it's up to dad. You know, dad's got to just pick up the slack a little bit. It's true. I mean, as uh, you know, whenever I'm bleary eyed and sort of stumbling around the offices here, I'm always like, you know what, baby and mommy, baby and mommy got it about a million times worse than I do. So I'm just gonna pull up my socks and tighten my shoes and take a big pull on the front and uh, get stuff done. So with all that said, getting it out of the way about what us schlubs have been up to, Andy, you're at the Welta. We just saw a very thrilling finish to stage four in El Puig. Uh, Fabio Jakobsen just threw his bike the perfect time to pip Sam Bennett and win. Great sprint battles going on at this Welta. But we have some GC stages on the horizon. We've also seen a bit of a shakeup in the GC already because stage two, organizers threw in an uphill finish that saw Naira Quintana take the win. Some of the GC guys lose out. And you know what? Before this Welty even got started, the GC picture changed dramatically. The couple of guys uh, just uh, just not showing up. So, Hoodie, bring us up to speed here. What's going on in this GC picture? Yeah, the never a dull moment at the Welta, as we've long grown accustomed to with the Spanish Grand Tour. Before the race even started, you're right, Richard Carpas was the main DNS. He had crashed during a uh, criterium race up in Holland, injured his shoulder, and was unable to take the start. He was one of the hot favorites for the start of this uh, Welta España. A little bit of controversy brewing here in Spain about that. Um, you know, there's some, there were some comments about, here's Carpas, you know, a week before the start of the Welta, his big kind of uh, final end-of-season goal you know, what is he up there doing, racing in a criterium to, to stuff, you know, 5000 bucks in his pocket or how much money those guys makes. So a lot of kind of behind-the-scenes drama there. And then we had, uh, right in the team time trial to open the race, big crash involving some of the top teams. There was water spilled onto the course. A lot of different stories going around about what really happened. There were some reports that uh, there was a baby pool in someone's backyard and it was popped. And all this water came rushing down onto the road, and it made, and it just turned. You know, down here in southern Spain, it's all very a lot of uh, a lot of dry roads, a lot of dust, a lot of oil, olive oil dust on the road, a lot of diesel spilt on the roads. Throw a little bit of fresh layer of water on there, and man, it just turned into an ice skating rink. We saw UAE and Jumbo smash into the barriers there, and that crash, pretty costly crash. We saw Kweiswick, uh, Stephen Kweiswick, third at the Tour de France. Third of last year as well, but he abandoned today as a result of that crash on, on Saturday. And then Sunday, man, boom, right out of the gate, you know, kind of this little spicy stage, a steep cat three, cat, excuse me, steep cat two climb, about 25 k from the finish. You saw this elite group of uh, five riders pop off the front. 
Nairo Quintana wins a, quote, flat stage. No one's seen that in years. Quintana gets the win. She's already kind of jazzed up the uh, GC, but Roglic is right there in the front. And then the last two days, kind of normalcy return to the Welts. Two kind of fast finishes, sprint finishes. The young new riders are winning these stages. And then we go right into the mountains with the first of kind of three kind of uphill finales over the next five days. So, Andy, you wrote about this uh, a few days ago, which is a dynamic that I think is always cool with the Welta. We've talked before about how, A, you know, the Welta, they, they seek out these punishing steep climbs. You look at the profile of a typical Welta stage, and even on some of the flat, innocuous-looking days, it looks like a ski jump at the finish line with, you know, 3K, 22% straight up in the air. Um, one of the dynamics that I think is interesting about this year's Welta is it really seems like there's a, the, sh- the stages are short. You know, you're not seeing anything over 200K. You're seeing stuff in sort of that 150 to 170K. And even if it's a hilly stage or lumpy stage, it just seems like the organizers are opting for the shorter days. Um, what, what, I mean, what kind of impact does that have on the racing dynamics and also just on these contenders who are going for the overall? I mean, just fewer Ks in the legs. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the Wilt has been kind of at the sh- you know sharp end of that trend going back more than a decade, really kind of almost uh, the beginning of this century. Now we're still talking decades here. Uh, the Wilt has started kind of, uh, you know, rolling out these shorter stages, 140Ks. Even this year, we got that uh, stage in Andorra on Sunday, 94Ks, five climbs. So that's going to be just up and down wild. And what that does, it does a few things. It kind of uh, creates uh, a more unpredictable dynamic than we're in the race. Because it's not just a 200, 230Ks controlled pace. It's not all just about resistance and endurance. It's about more about explosivity. So it kind of sets up that dynamic where riders aren't afraid to attack because they know on the back end of all these efforts, they're not having to face these huge, long, grueling stages because it's all stacked up with shorter, more dynamic racing. And I think that the Wilta, you know, they kind of found their little their brand, right? It's these shorter stages, punchier finishes. Uh, there's still a, a kind of mix of a little bit of a time trialing, a little bit of sprinting, but it's been all about the, uh, the climbers in the last 10 years or so at the Welta. And man, it works, right? It's like the Welta is the funnest race to watch. I know. I always uh, tell all my friends who are, you know, casual cycling fans, yeah, they're tuned in for the Tour de France. I'm like, guys, watch the classics, watch the third week of the Giro, and then watch every uh, GC day of the Welta. Even the flat stages are just so crazy, and there's action, and it's just very dynamic. No one's on their best, best, best form. Everyone is sort of milking either Tour de France form or building up after the Giro, and so it makes for this thrilling racing. Uh, before we carry on, Hoodie, I think, you know... I think I got to put you on the beat of trying to get to the bottom of the uh, kiddie pool collapsing uh, on the uh, uh, team time trial, spilling water on the ground. I mean, the alleged spilling of the kiddie pool. I, I, this could like go down in history, like uh, Eddie Merckx getting punched, like uh, you know the shortened stage due to the ice storm at the Tour de France. I mean, a, a kiddie pool overturn spills on the on the ground and all of a sudden Yumbo Visma and Roglic are now at a deficit because of it. I mean, talk about a polemica. This is this is amazing. <laughs> Indeed it is. But you know, there's other stories going around. The guy was just washing his car and all the soapy water went down onto the course. <laughs> Another story is the guy who was cleaning his pool and just dumped all the water out. He does it uh, you know, every every Saturday, every Saturday afternoon he cleans his pool and dumps all the water. Uh, but uh, I'll I'll be I'll get on that beat for it. I'll get I'll get I'll find a scoop on that story. I love that. That's just how real bike racing is, you know. You uh, roll with the punches that the terrain throws you and that the locals throw at you. I think we all remember some of those images of like the opening time trial at, uh, and team time trial at Torino Adriatico when there's always people just like walking their dogs across the course. And, you know, Mitchelton Scott has to grab their brakes because some lady in her uh, Pomeranian almost get run over. Um, so, I mean, as we look at the list of contenders right now, Andy, like you said, uh, Team Ineos, they are no longer in it. Um, Nairo's right up there. Roglic is up there. Uh, Miguel Angel Lopez is up there. Rigoberto Uran, who you wrote about today, or Gregor Brown actually wrote about today. This could potentially be his last good shot to go for a Grand Tour overall. Um, what's the, you know, how do you assess the uh, the favorites right now, and who do you think is the strongest, or like who is in the Tier One favorite as the as the strongest contenders as you see them? Yeah, there's been a lot of hype about this is going to be the Latin American. Welta, 
We've already seen Latin American riders win Carapaz at the Giro, Bernal at the Tour. So the, the big hype is a Colombian. Well, Carapaz is no longer here. He's from Ecuador, of course. So a Colombian could and should win this Vuelta España. But when you look at the, you know, if you had to pick out one singular favorite, you know, you have to look to Primoz Roglic. I was talking to his sport director this morning, Addy Ingles, at the uh, Yumbo Visma bus, and they are racing to win. I mean, the plan initially, he was telling me this morning that Primoz was supposed to actually race the Giro and the Tour, but after coming out of that hard Giro effort, you know, remember Roglic uh, racing just in his fourth Grand Tour at the Giro, you know, ended up uh, finishing third overall, won two stages, held that pink jersey for, you know, a good week or so. Um, you know, really had to battle, put everything in it to get that third place podium spot, a milestone for him and his team. Um, so he had to step back, readjust his calendar. Now he comes into this well time and they're racing to win. And man, what team has performed more consistently across the season this year than Yumbo Visma? They're winning an all terrain, the classics, the sprints, the grand tours. So pro Roglic right now with that big time trial winning, uh, up in Poe and uh, midway through this Welta could really put him in the driver's seat. We'll see. I think on paper, Lopez, Miguel Angel Lopez is really set up to perhaps win this thing. But then Nairo is looking good off, off early in the race. Uran, who crashed today, however, we'll see what happens with him. Like you said, his last chance maybe to win a tour. But I think by the end of this week, you know, we'll have a better idea of who actually has the legs to try to win. The Welta could always serve up some surprises. Then there's always Alejandro Valverde. I mean, we cannot count out Alejandro Valverde. Yeah, I could see a dynamic in which Nairo, uh, Chavez, and Lopez, you know, the climbers, are really looking at these summit finish days and punchy days and accelerating, accelerating, accelerating to try to get a head start for the time trials. And it's more of the Roglic and Rigoberto Uran where their strategy is to keep these guys within sight on the climbs, maybe not kill themselves to go all out to finish with them, but to try to keep them on a short enough leash where they could uh, surpass them in the time trial. Because as we all know, Rugoberto Uran, very good individual time trialist, um, pretty explosive, like e explosive enough. Um, I mean, we've seen him do great in one of these, some of these one days. I mean, he won, uh, what was it? What was the Montreal or the Quebec race? Uh, Roglic, not as explosive, but the time trial is really his ace in the hole. So, I mean, I just... You know, we we see this a lot in Grand Tours where it's like the pure climbers are trying to distance the guys who can time trial. We didn't see that much, too much at the Tour because of the lack of time trials. But um, I think this could be an interesting dynamic that we see in the coming weeks. I'm with you, man. I'd love to see Primoz Roglic do it. He was my big pick for the Giro. I was so surprised when he took on water in that final week and just lacked the punch and the pop and faded to third. But uh, I wonder if a race like the Welta with these punchy climbs, could be a little bit better suited for him. Um, but, you know, never count out Nairo. I mean, this is his final race with Movistar. Maybe he's looking to uh, make a statement. Um, I, you know, from what it sounds like, he was, I don't know, pr probably pretty psyched when he became the outright leader when Carapaz was not going to come here. So I could see him having extra motivation to try and win one uh, for the last time in a Movistar jersey. We shall see. It's going to be an action-packed Welta. Uh, it's an interesting welter because the final week is a little bit different. It, it kind of goes off script this year. The final week is in, is in a part of Spain uh, in the central north Meseta, kind of this high, dry, windy country. A lot of undulating terrain. A lot of the kind of final climbs are across this area in the Sierra de Gredos, which are away from kind of, you know, the, the last few years we've seen the welter either finish last year in the Pyrenees and Andorra or up there in Asturias and Angliru and some of these kind of real steep, grindy climbs. And the Sierra de Gredos, they're kind of uh, more exposed, more open to the wind, a lot of up and down profile days. And some of the stages, you know, are not quite as as steep as some of these Angliru-type climbs. So it kind of sets up that dynamic of maybe seeing some surprises in this Vuelta when, you know, maybe someone has that jersey, but you see a strong team, or you see a few kind of riders collaborate, could set up some ambushes in the final week. Or, you know, if you do have a strong leader on a strong team, just kind of march that right into Madrid over the last four or five days and just have it almost be a procession. We'll see. But the Welta never disappoints. It's going to be a great race. We've already seen four great days of racing. Uh, but what about you, Freddie? You just came off racing in Colorado. Tell us about it. Remind me of what happened. You know, the Colorado Classic, 
went from just now it's just a women's race. Yeah, so that was the big story around this year's Colorado Classic. This is the third year, and it follows in the tradition of long Colorado races, you know, the Coors Classic, USA Pro Challenge, and then the Colorado Classic, which launched in 2017. Um, and it launched in 2017 as this innovative model. It was going to be a bike race blended with a rock concert, and ticket sales from the rock concert were going to go to pay for the bike race. It was this innovative model that was trying to you know, get past some of the financial challenges that um, often derail bike races. And in its first two years, it, uh, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, it, it failed. I mean, it lost lots of money. It lost millions of dollars in its first year, lost less, but the losses were still pretty big in its second year. So for year three, uh, the organizers ditched the rock concert. They ditched the men's race and they focused um, solely on the women's race. And look, there's economic reasons for doing that. Um, but they also had this mission of wanting to make their race a real statement for focusing on um, women's inclusivity, gender equality, and promoting women's cycling. And um, it, it, it really worked out for them. Um, we, we can talk about the action of the race later, but just from a pure business perspective, and, and look, readers of the site know that uh, I myself love to report on sports business and the business of the sport. Um, the model that they went with focusing on a women's only race paid off for them because they were able to attract a title sponsor in VF Corporation, which is the company that owns brands such as the North Face, um, what else? Smart Wool, a bunch of outdoor brands, which has recently moved to Denver. And VF has a real uh, a push for gender equality and promoting women's sports. And so it was this um, sponsorship race match made in heaven. Um, then they were able to do an innovative model with their TV broadcast where instead of buying time on like NBC Sports or cable, they distributed it for free online. And instead of going with the traditional broadcast infrastructure of like having an airplane in the air and helicopters and all this costly system, they went with the inexpensive, um, something called bonded cellular, where they're using cameras that basically run off of uh, cell phone signals, which are a lot cheaper. So they saved money there. They saved money um, on their TV. And um, this race since day one, which has tried to get to break even and sustainability, um, from what management told me at the finish line, they didn't quite get there this year, but the losses were, were small. They're like marginal losses right there for breaking even. And... I mean, we've reported on this for, you know, more than a decade here at Velo News. Like, that's hard to do with these North American bike races because the business model is so difficult. So the fact that this race um, makes itself a women's only race and is able to get really close to sustainability is that's uh, a huge story. I cannot hammer that home for our listeners enough. Like, that is an enormous story that the Colorado Classic um, refocused itself on women's racing, offered this huge prize purse and got very close to break even. It's a great story, Hoodie. I don't, I, I don't know what else to say other than that. Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting times, I think, for that, that, uh, that business model. There's so, many innov so much innovation there. You know, why, you know, why not disrupt the whole model of how we view and watch and produce bicycle racing? You know, why does it have to be so expensive? It's, it's cool to see people on the ground thinking outside the box and making it work. And then also just putting your arms around this idea of having a women's only race and getting sponsors to step up. That's always been the big problem with uh, everyone always insists on having gender equality. But of course, part of the problem is, you know, who is going to pay for that? So it's great that we're seeing response from the marketplace because, I mean, I think that really is, uh, you know, everyone talks about the untapped potential of women's cycling. And that's what they have to sell is a standalone product. It's something that's going to be attractive to sponsors. And, you know, the racing speaks for itself, and the racing is always world-class. It's always exciting. We saw that uh, in Colorado this week. Um, but so it's, it's cool to see that innovation on the backside behind the doors, innovation in marketing and in, in sponsorship. Yeah, and look, we've seen this in Europe as well. Uh, during the classics, it's something that we reported on with Flanders Classics and how they've been um, staging the women's races that they hold. You know, some of these big classics, like Tour of Flanders and Dwarves and stuff like that, they also have the women's race. And, and, and this year, they um, staged the women's races very close to the men's races to try and capitalize on TV infrastructure and fans along the side of the road, basically with the, the theory of, like, if you have two races going on at the same time, it lifts all ships because you know the the fans get to see the women's race too they get keyed into women's racing and how dynamic and awesome it is and they become 
become fan, fans of that sport, as opposed to the old model, which was like man, men's race one day, women's race the next day, and, and just not as many people show up for the women's race. Um, so, you know, it is good to see that there's innovation going on, like you said, in um, the way that these race organizers are promoting and packaging um, women's cycling. I mean, it, it was crazy. Like, it was, you know, it's the only standalone women's race in North America. And I think that actually, that helped them stand out in the marketplace, especially the sponsorship marketplace, by being able to say, hey, look, we're the only ones, we're taking a risk, this is an experiment. Like, our whole message is empowerment, women's equality. Um, and, you know, even in the broadcast, you saw this, where it wasn't just showing the race every single day. It was like, they'd show the race for a while and then cut away and have like a, like a prepackaged feature about some of the women in the race. Hey, this gal's a PhD. Hey, this gal has a full-time job. Hey, this team is comprised of collegiate all-stars. You know, really trying to tell the, the personal stories of some of these athletes. And, and that's something that sets women's cycling apart from men's cycling, where a lot of times the athletes, you know, do have really interesting professional backgrounds. Most of them work full-time. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I give them a, a ton of credit for taking the chance for being innovative and for, you know, just, you know, kind of doing the, like the blocking and tackling to make sure the race went well. Um, you know, you can talk about how innovative and different cool your race is, but if you don't do the basic blocking and tackling of having a cool course, getting the right teams, making sure everyone's happy and, uh, you know, get, you know, if you have a broadcast product, making sure people can see your race, if you don't do that right, then it's all for naught. And so this race and its management team did that. They executed. So kudos to them. You know, on the performance side, I mean, it was just it was just complete domination. I can't remember the last time I saw this at a race where one rider, uh, Chloe Digard Owen, uh, uh, Olympic silver medalist, uh, world junior world champion on the tr- on the track and the uh, actually on the road, um, she won all four stages. She won. The hilly opening day, the mountainous second day, the flat third day, and the pan flat fourth day. All solo victories. Um, <laughs> we, need yeah. To, yeah, we need to get Marianne Voss there next year. <laughs> we do. We need to get Marianne Voss there next year. But the whole thing with you know Chloe, who has had this career, this storied career on the track, and has had some trepidation racing on the road. She raced the Tour of California last year, crashed, had a head injury that knocked her out for most of the year. And when I talked to her earlier this year at the Tour of California, I mean, she was saying, look, I still feel a little shaky getting back into these pro women's races. Um, so to see her overcome the, that shakiness and those demons and just go out and crush everyone um, was pretty exciting to see. Again, Hoodie, I can't remember the last time I saw a rider just so thoroughly just like just crush everyone in a race. Well, that that's uh, that sounds like uh, an interesting uh, couple of days there. Uh, you know, hopefully, you know, there's some some buzz there in terms of coming out. You know, this the talk of this year at the Tour de France is that the ASO is looking to create a uh, women's edition of the Tour, and we hope that can take off because uh, you know the whole idea of running a, a Tour de France alongside the men's race logistically, the ASO has just said that is not going to work. So maybe there's some lessons to be learned out of Colorado that can help the sport in general. Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know, ASO put out a statement. Um, or actually, you know, they talked to uh, Rob Arnold. Uh, it was uh, Prudhomme talked to Rob Arnold during the tour and told him, and we had this story on, on, on the site, that basically they are not entirely convinced that running a women's race alongside the tour is the best way to do it. They, they said they have plans for 2020 to do more with women's racing. But I don't know. Maybe the Colorado Classic convinces ASO that, like, if you're going to do women's race, do it on its own and focus all your attention on it and make it cool and make it big because you know, the course is, I don't know, it's great they do it, but it's not. It's just not up to the level that I think all of us would like to see it at. So I think the Colorado Classic, and look, we have a ton of stories on the site this week about the Colorado Classic. Um, I think it can be a model for the rest of the sport to learn going forward. So, um, you know, they said they're coming back next year. They have sponsors. They have TV. They, they have great athletes. Um, and it's, it's an American cycling success story, one of the rare ones that we get to, uh, to tell the world of global cycling. So, Hoodie, you know, I wanted to, uh, before we got, got off the welter there, you know, we have, an Ameri- we have another American success story, uh, and that is of Mr. Nielsen Paulus, uh, the young up-and-coming American is making his Grand Tour debut at the Welta. Now, a lot of times when young guys make their Grand Tour debuts, I mean, is there a lot of pressure on them? 
uh, or is it usually kind of like, hey, survive, see what you can what you can pick up? What what's that usually like for a youngster making his grand tour debut? Yeah, with Nielsen, he's he's kind of jumping right into the frying pan, uh, really just right into the deep end with this uh, with this first grand tour. I mean, not all writers are like Egon Bernal. You know, last year he made his first grand tour debut at the Tour de France and then winning in his second Tour de France, his second grand tour ever. Uh, Bernal was kind of a one in a million type writers. You know, so most writers kind of come into uh, their first grand tour, usually typically the Giro or the Welta. You know, it's usually kind of a secondary goal for the team coming in. So they get a chance to, you know, the main goal A is just to finish the race. B, you know, don't get in the way. Don't cause any problems. Learn. Keep your eyes open. You know, manage your efforts and just survive because, you know, racing any Grand Tour is hard. So that is, you know, the traditional way that teams will kind of ease in and bring in younger riders. But things have changed. Uh, first off, you know, it's only eight spots per grand tour team now instead of nine so that really puts the pinch on teams finding space on their grand tour rosters for the young riders because typically they always have that one extra spot bring in the neo pro let him to see what he can do but now if you got eight guys on the team and you're bringing a sprinter or you're some stage hunters or you know if you are bringing a gc that makes it a lot harder for teams to kind of bring in younger riders and uh so that's kind of is what's happening now with nielsen what happened last year with sep Kuss on the same team jumbo visma it's like they're coming to the race not just to kind of ride around for a month and maybe pick up a stage and get some breakaways. They're coming into this well to respond to win. Primo Roglic, he is the top, one of the top favorites of this race. So he's coming into this first grade tour, a little bit different pressure on his shoulders. Uh, I've got, uh, got a story coming up on the website. Here's a nice little grab from uh, Powis about what's that like making his grand tour debut with the pressure of the GC hanging over, over his shoulders. Uh, it started off pretty rough for us with the TTT. We crashed, um, especially when we were really gunning for the win. I think that, um, yeah, we were all feeling really good and we were rotating really well and everybody was working together really well. And we had some, some big engines with Tony Martin and Primo's both taking incredibly long pulls at the power we were producing. It was, it was, it was pretty incredible. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately we went down and it kind of started things off a bit rough for us. But... I think the last couple of days we've yeah kind of moved past that and realized that it wasn't actually a it wasn't a very massive time loss for Primos or George or Steven. So um, yeah, we're just trying to focus on doing everything well from here on out and trying to get back the time that they lost. But um, yeah, it all just comes down to I guess us positioning them and then them just finishing it off with uh, hopefully some good legs. What happened in that race? I mean, uh, the time trial, there were some stories that some swimming pool had exploded, some inflatable swimming pool exploded, all the water came rushing down on the course. Yeah, I don't actually know. Like, there's, I've heard so many different theories about what happened. I mean, I've heard, like, somebody was washing their car, and it was, like, kind of soapy and watery. I heard somebody was, like, like washing a baby in a swimming pool or something, so there was soap in it, and the pool exploded. I mean, I don't really know, but... Uh, it, wasn't one, there, it wasn't there during recon. No, yeah, it wasn't there in recon, and um, I think it was maybe the last, like, five or six teams or something ended up hitting the water. But, um, yeah, I guess, like, UAE had, had crashed, and the the the, marsh, the race marshals didn't, didn't see it because they hadn't been to that part of the course yet, and they were actually following our team car. So once we came through and we crashed, then they, they realized that there was water there, and then they started, um, like, warning people ahead of time telling them to slow down and letting them know that it was slightly dangerous um unfortunately for us that um we didn't have anybody there telling us because we just came around the corner and it was completely completely wet and it was the same speed that we had done it four times in training already like pretty close to the same speed so i mean we were all like really confident with being able to take it pretty quick but um yeah it was just not possible when the roads get that wet you have to adjust accordingly but just too little, too late, unfortunately. But um, you had a few uh, little scrapes, nothing too major, though. Obviously. Uh, no, no. I think, uh, yeah, I think for the most part, everybody just has has minor scrapes. I think uh, um, Stephen hit his knee pretty qu- pretty hard, um, and he's just hoping that each day it'll get a bit better. But um, yeah, Leonard got some X-rays to make sure that nothing was nothing was broken because he was feeling it a bit the next day. Um, but for myself, it's been it's been alright. Like the the second day, I was. I was feeling it, like getting out of the saddle and sprinting and stuff, but um, like yesterday and today, especially, I think it's uh, getting much better. Into the groove a little bit now, and then the, the day two mm. over that steep climb, uh, primo up the road, but man, it was like, welcome to the Grand Tour. Yeah, yeah, that was a heck of a way to kick things off. I mean, heck of a way to kick things off at the TTT, especially just such an intense effort for um, the beginning of a very long race, and then already 
a GC battle on stage two is, um, yeah, getting things started pretty hot. But no, it's it's good. It's good to, I guess, just get stuck in straight away and um, just you know commit to, like, yeah, this is a race for three weeks. It's not just like a, a tour and then it's not just like you're touring around and then like a couple days you have GC battle. A couple days are tough, but it's just like really trying to stay focused all the time. But it's also nice for me because I really feel like I have a goal every day to achieve something, whether it's position for this climb or this descent or, um, yeah, just keeping, like, blocking, cutting as much wind as possible for the GC guys with George and Stevie and, and Primos. So I think it's, it's, it's much, I would much rather have a, have a race like this where I have a clear goal every day rather than um, just, you know, get through it. And, um, yeah, just I have something to focus on every day, which is really nice. What was the team telling you coming into the season? They said the welter was in, in the cards for you at the beginning of the season? Already? Yeah, I actually already knew from December that I was going to be well, on the long list or had a good chance of racing the Vuelta. They can't ever say for sure because obviously like when people get sick or people crash and your schedule changes, then then maybe you have to, to like add one race and remove another race. But um, I mean, I was planning on racing the Vuelta all the way from December. so. Yeah, it was it was massive to be able to like mentally prepare and physically prepare myself for a heavy second half of the year and realizing that the biggest challenge of the year is going to be coming now uh, for the Vuelta. So, um, yeah, I think I was able to plan the training and 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 do everything pretty well and feeling really good now and feeling really fresh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, hopefully it's hopefully I can feel like that for another couple of weeks. But what did uh, Sepp tell you? Because you know, last year he got the call last year already. Yeah. First year for both of you guys last year. Now your second year. Any advice from Sepp about what the welt is like? Uh, I just remember him talking about how hot it was and how much like and like his body was just getting inflamed and from the heat just like holding on to so much water weight and he was like I just gained so much weight throughout the throughout the race from Retain, retaining the yeah water, just yeah. water retention and same thing with with George and I guess a lot of other guys and other teams but um, yeah I think that we were able to kind of make some adjustments with the with the nutrition and so far weight's holding steady I mean it's only I don't know stage four so it's not like it's not like you really notice it too much yet but um, yeah I don't know I think it's just conserving as much as you can every day and as much as you can for, for, you know, a guy that ha that's supposed to try and block wind as much as possible for the GC guys. But um, yeah, save when I can and only use energy when necessary. That's I think the biggest thing. But I'm expecting to be pretty tired in a few weeks. But um, that's why you're here. Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> What's it mean for you personally to to get this kind of a milestone, the first Grand Tour in your leg as a mm -hmm. young pro? It's always a big deal. Yeah, I'm I'm actually like just pretty excited to see how I come out of it because um, I think that's a pretty a pretty big difference between the guys that in the future maybe can can win races like this or compete well in races like this is um, how like refreshed you can be still in the last week or relatively how good you are uh, compared to the rest of the peloton in the final week um, and yeah I'm really excited about that and and then I also hear that everything you feel like for months after even when you start your winter training again if you finish with the Vuelta just everything kind of feels different so I don't know, I guess it's just gonna be cool to, to feel those changes and like see how it affects my body and um, hopefully I can stay mentally mentally strong and just yeah, just keep plugging away during the race and then come out of it well. Just final question, you guys come here to win the race with Primo and Weisswick is obviously uh, in there as well. Uh, that makes it almost better, you said, because it gives you a kind of a focus every day. You have a mm -hmm. job to do rather than just trying mm -hmm. to endure it. You're out there working with a, yeah. with a team, uh, uh, a goal. Yeah, helps. yeah I think it, it helps get a little bit more out of yourself. I think that when you're just kind of going through the motions and just trying to get through the race and feel how it, like feel your first Grand Tour, I guess, is just what a lot of people would say. Um, I feel like you almost kind of just feel like you can just give up a little sooner maybe but when you're when you're with a team that can potentially win the race then you know like no you have to survive one or two more climbs or you have to make it to the final climb to 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 show the strength of the team and also to um to be there in case anything happens for your for your gc riders and i think that this can really that like having having a race like that where i'm really have to push myself to get the most out of myself for the team and it's not just for myself but um you know, we all have a, one big goal as a group. So, um, yeah, I think I can get a lot more out of this race by having a situation like this. All right. Thanks for the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I'm I'm really eager to see what uh, Palace can do 
in the Grand Tour. He's been a guy who's been on our radar for a long time. And, you know, he's on this team that just seems to be doing it right. Uh, like you said, Sepp Kuss made his Grand Tour debut last year at the Welta with them. And uh, they he did great. I mean, he really contributed to the uh, team's ambitions. And look, and you, as you see it now, he's now a regular Grand Tour rider. So I think that's something that we'd all like to see for old Nielsen, even though Oh man, it's gonna be it's gonna be hard for the guy uh, just having to help uh, Primoz Roglic go out there and get after it. Um, Hoodie, before we get out of here, uh, we have another race, big, big, big race coming up this uh, coming week, and that is the UCI Mountain Bike World Championships in Mont Saint Anne, Quebec. One of my favorite places to go for a race. For all the listeners out there, if you ever want to go check out like the coolest most fun weekend of uh, top-level pro mountain biking out there. Uh, put the Mont saint Anne World Cup on your list. This year, it's the World Championships. Uh, they know how to hold just an amazing event. I used to go there 10 years ago when I was a mountain bike editor. It was just, it was so fun. I would need, I would need like a recovery week to get done from that weekend. But uh, so Mont saint Anne is coming up. We have American Kate Courtney, who's going to try to defend her title in the cross-country. Um, we also have the debut Andy of e mountain bike racing. That's right. There's electric mountain biking is now a uh, world championship event, and I've actually been doing some research on this. So I, before we uh, get to our interview, which is uh, Christoph Souser is going to talk to us all about e mountain biking. Um, I have a question for you. W- what questions do you have for me about e mountain bike racing? Man, e-mountain bike racing, uh, is it real? <laughs> I guess that's the first question. Of course it's real, but what, what are the rules? What, what's the standard? So the standard is the UCI has released all of these limits for the size of the engine in terms of wattage, and you have to use the single battery. And so the, and, and I don't, those aren't right off the top of my head. I think it's 250 watts, maybe 500 watts. I can't remember what it is. But really the name of the game, what they're trying to do with this, is make the racing about battery management. So I don't know if anyone out there has ridden an e-mountain bike or an e-bike in general. You know, you have usually have three or four different settings. You have, you know, low, medium, high, and World Cup speedster, you know, afterburner speed. And so when you are setting your bike on afterburner speed, something they call turbo, you are just blowing through your battery. And so they've designed a course and made it at a, a length in which there's no way that you can run full afterburner or even full, you know, like trail mode the entire time because you will train your battery and then all of a sudden you will be left with just a heavier mountain bike than a normal mountain bike to pedal. So the onus is on the athletes to know their bikes well enough to be able to like meter out the, um, the oomph from the engine um, otherwise they will just, you know, they'll run out of their battery and then they're, they're just like, Oh, instead of having a 25 pound or a 20 pound mountain bike to pedal, now I have a 40 pound mountain bike to pedal. So, um, it's a cool, it's a really interesting dynamic. The course designers, they, the guy said, he's like, ah, oh, well we put in some of these like steeper climbs, climbs that are so steep and so long that you might not be able to ride them on a normal mountain bike. And then they go down sections of the actual downhill track because a lot of these e-mountain bikes actually have more travel than a regular cross country. So they're, you know, if a, a regular cross country has got a four or five inch bike and these are like six inch bikes. And so they are going down extremely rugged terrain that you couldn't really do on a normal cross country bike. Bike, and then going up crazy climbs where you need that boost just to get it to the top, even for some of these World Cup guys and gals. Um, so in, in that respect, when I started talking and, and hearing these dynamics, I think, yes, it is real. Um, I think it's not just a novelty. Like people aren't going to be doing this with wigs and tutus on and just have it the novelty of going really fast on a, on a bike. I think this is, there's, they're trying to make it so that there's real sort of skill and science involved, which I don't know. I think is uh, I think that's pretty cool. Well, it's interesting in the road scene. Of course, they're they're X-raying to make sure there aren't batteries inside of, or motors inside of a bike. Here, they've embraced the idea and said, "Hey, let's make it a sanctioned event." Uh, you know, you could see this little subculture build up around us. You know, probably get people specializing in this, getting sponsors, getting professional contracts. You know, specialized training. But, you know, the battery management is an interesting concept. You know, it just kind of reveals really just, you know, how fast and far and how fragmented the cycling world is becoming. 
you know, got everything from gravel. It's a marathon, old school road biking. You know, you just have all these different things now with the Zwift racing, indoor racing, online racing. You know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be nonstop, Fred. We need to hire more people. It already is nonstop, even with just road racing. Oh, my gosh. I know the prospect of Zwifting at uh, e-bike world championships. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what are they going to think of next? Um, and you know what? They, they are already uh, with the with the e-bike stuff. You know, it's being driven a lot by the industry. Um, I think that the industry looks at the sale of e-bikes and sees a real positive step in the right direction. And I also think that they see um, motorsports sniffing around e-bikes and saying, hey, Here's this new invention, innovation that's um, selling really well. What if we started creating competitions for them? You know, because these things do kind of straddle the world between traditional cycling and motorsports. And I think that some of the motorsports promoters and um, governing bodies saw an opportunity to maybe uh, dip their hand in the bike industry. And so the UCI and some of the industry said, "Well, we got to strike while the iron's hot here and get." competitions going and you know sort of stake our claim and and build some legitimacy around this stuff or else uh, someone could come in and swoop it away and you know in talking to Souser they you know he is racing for specialized but what he said is that some of the heavy hitters from the specialized world cup team like guys and gals who are racing full-time for cross country are also going to do the e-mountain bike race because I think there's like five or six days in between the e-mountain bike race and the cross country and that's enough time for you to recover so Souser was saying in a perfect world, they could uh, structure some of these World Cups and World Championships events where there'd be a long enough break in between the e-bike and the cross-country where, you know, maybe some of the the heavy hitters from the cross-country world would actually want to jump in there and do it too. Um, I don't know about that. I mean, it, it sounds like a lot of fun. I don't know how much weight I personally will give to the e-bike world champion. Um, hey, rainbow stripes are rainbow stripes, but it is kind of weird. There was, there was part of me that was thinking maybe e-bike would evolve as sort of the like the Halloween cyclocross race version of the mountain bike world where, yeah, people are racing with wigs and tutus on and stuff. But uh, I don't know. Sounds like it's going to be a lot more serious than that. Should I send you to e-mountain bike uh, worlds next year, Hoodie? Would you want to go check out, uh, become our e-racing correspondent? Hey, let's do it. There's never, never a bike race I don't like. <laughs> well, let's hear from Christoph Souser, who's going to tell us all about the e-mountain biking world championships and then I think we are going to just uh, call it a day on the podcast. So, Andy, thank you so much for making time there at the Vuelta. We will catch up uh, in a week or so to talk about the Vuelta's exciting second week of action. Indeed. Thanks, Fred. And I'm trying to get some perspective on like how the – especially the e-cross-country races are different from a traditional cross-country race in terms of – the strategy, the overall feel, how serious people take them. So I've experienced in, in endurance e-bike racing where you have to do battery management and then see other classic. And the, the first thing um, I have to say, say is e-bike racing, not riding, is way harder than, than um, normal bike racing. That's for sure. It's, it's because you still pedal as as hard as you can <laughs> and but suddenly you go uphill so much faster and also flat technical single chairs meaning going uphill you know you have to be careful that that the front doesn't lift that you don't take a corner too fast even uphill that you the, the gear shifting has to be quicker um and then uh, you have to do battery management on the on the longer stuff um, always constant, have an eye on, on that, which I think is quite the fun part. Um, and then if it's very technical uphills, you know, you see a rock, can I ride it? Can I not? You have to take a quick decision because you, because you come fast and then you don't make it over it. And then you have to jump off the bike and the bike falls sideways. <laughs> you have to hold that 20 kilogram bike and then uh, yeah, you have to, to lift that thing over the rock. Um, it's, very hard e-mountain bike racing. What can you say about the battery management aspect of it? Because like the world – I talked to the uh, organizers of the world championships and they said we're really trying to make it a course where you're going to have to conserve battery because there's really steep climbs that could drain the battery and it just it just they're, – they're really trying to make battery conservation like uh, an important component of the race. So, what, what can you say about that and the races that you've done and how that fits into your overall strategy? 
I, I do think it's very important to have uh, battery management included. That also means there's also the um, the bike manufacturer part comes into play. How good is your your bike basically? Um, how good is your your battery? I like I like that because it's it's man and and machine, uh, um, and then it needs also exper- experience. So basically, I obviously I use my Garmin. And I'll check how much do I still have to climb. And out of my experience, I quite know. So, for example, in full turbo mode, I can climb now with the new battery almost thousand five hundred, two thousand meters. I haven't checked it with the new battery yet. And so I have to take that in consideration. Okay, there's still three more climbs to come of about so much climbing. Um, no, I can only go now in the trail mode. And so you'd rather take it a bit longer in the trail mode and then you see, okay, 300 meters to go. Now that's for sure going to last until I can change my battery or, or I'm at the finish. That's, that's kind of like my, my radar on the, on the battery or my thinking strategy. Uh, it's often the meters of climbing. That's interesting. I think that brings a cool element to it where it's not just about who has the strongest legs and lungs, but yeah, you have to be smart and calculate very well or else, yeah, if you run out of battery now, all of a sudden you just have a bike that's heavier than a normal bike and you have to race it along. Yeah, I did run out of battery because I transversed and I took a wrong turn and ended up in Nice instead of the finish line. So <laughs> that's actually a funny story. So, And Nice has lots of so valleys going in. I didn't know where I have to go back and I'm in the middle of the city and the race started the day before in the city so I went back to the to the sea and I went to the start and I'm trying to figure out how do I get now into the mountains where the finish of the day could be I didn't have a cell phone with me so I asked three English road riders if I can use their cell phone to call a, call a friend up there and it couldn't be more English they were worried I gonna steal their cell phone, so they said yes, but you have to get off the bike, and they're holding my bike. <laughs> I think that's a funny story too. <laughs> so.